It is genuinely a blessing, isn't it, to be able to assemble and to gather today, to do so with a desire to worship our God in heaven in truth and in spirit, as is commanded of us in John 4, 24. And as we're assembled this morning, can't we all say that it's such a blessing to have men who can lead us in singing, who can lead us in prayer, who can take care of the services in such a decent and orderly fashion. And we're so thankful for that capability and their willingness to use those gifts in that way. As you probably have noticed, our lesson text taken from 1 Peter 2.11 is one that will begin our lesson this morning. And in just a moment, as we cast a spotlight on that text in 1 Peter chapter 2, let me encourage you to turn with me to that location. And perhaps these introductory comments will prepare us to give some thought to the message found in that passage. Isn't it interesting? In fact, isn't it a great blessing to appreciate, as I've asked you to comment, that the Lord Jesus Christ, He came to this old world of such sinfulness and such iniquity, and yet He gave His life on the cross that those who come to Him can in fact appreciate the blessing of salvation. You and I today lift high the banner of obedience and the banner of following and pursuing Him. No wonder as you come to the middle of that slide, isn't it a constant appreciation about the way in which the devil often can bring before us this sense of tension in which we wish by the character of our thought and mind to worship and to do so as we serve day by day. But also the world, of course, presents to us these other temptations and allurements and enticements. And as you and I strive to be wholly devoted to God, we appreciate that there is that ongoing tension between the two. Jesus said it, didn't He, in Matthew 6, 24, that you cannot serve two masters. For either you will hate the one and love the other, or else you will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in mammon. And as the Lord lifted then this banner of unique and total dedication to Himself, maybe you notice in this verse in Romans 6, verses 16 to 18, Paul one more time mentioned this ongoing set of decisions that you and I make. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourself servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. Now at that point we notice there were two camps or at least two considerations. Paul highlighted those that were servants to sin and those that were servants to righteousness. And the next verse he went on to say this, But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you, and being made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. Aren't we thankful then for the Word of God that allows us to know and to then take heed to what will make us servants of righteousness, leaving behind the features of sin? One last verse, this First John 2, verses 15 to 17 point again to the realization, love not the world. We all know well the devil is a master at turning our attention, our allurements, our enticements to those things that are prompted by the world. And yet all through the ages, those who are servants of God wish to remain appropriately distant from the lusts of this world. And that brings us to the lesson text this morning. You probably noticed it just a moment ago, and let's use this opening slide to give some thought to what Peter affirmed in that passage. In 1 Peter chapter 2, 
Verse 11. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. This book of 1 Peter was addressed to those strangers that were scattered abroad. These individuals, as we learn from chapter 1, that in fact had been dispersed because of the persecution of that day, they found themselves living in a number of different places. The early church wasn't just in Jerusalem, was it? Under the terrible character of that persecution in so many ways, Christians were forced to flee to far distant places sometimes for safety. Peter addressed some individuals that were scattered abroad. And you notice in the midst of this message to them, he highlights for them a very tender plea. Did you note the way that verse began with me? Dearly beloved. Sometimes you and I, even to this day, hear that perhaps as the opening statements made on an occasion of, let's say, a wedding ceremony. Dearly beloved, we're gathered here today in the sight of God and this company to join together this man and this woman in holy matrimony. Maybe you've heard that tender phrase, dearly beloved. Peter besought those individuals. He loved them. He was concerned about them. He wanted them to appreciate this vital matter in not only, of course, that daily walk of life, but to remain faithful unto the Lord in every way that was appropriate. Dearly beloved, I beseech you. Paul made a tender plea to them. A plea that you'll notice was stated in words like this. Abstain from something. What does that word abstain mean? The actual Greek word carries this thought of just as you and I would anticipate to literally abstain, to stay away from, to be distant from. And you'll notice the object was fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. You'll notice then with that, these are desires, these are passions. The Word carries that very thought in it. And as such, they are based upon the matters of the flesh. Surely in light of that, that brings to our thought Romans 8, 6. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Peter admonished these individuals, and no doubt they were in a very difficult set of circumstances, often beset with suffering and persecution. Despite that fact, he says, these fleshly lusts, you can't be given to them. You cannot, in fact, compromise with them. You have to appreciate they war against your soul. That word war, I would ask you to consider a moment. You and I often look with great disdain on the word war. To say that two individuals disagree is to say one thing, but to say that they are at war with one another, that carries a whole different attitude and an entire different appreciation, doesn't it? For to say that they are warring against each other, they are actively and rather aggressively opposing each other, even with a desire for harm one to the other. Isn't that, isn't that the way war works? These fleshly lusts, Peter wrote, they are warring against your soul. They are not passive in their nature and they're not innocent in their character. They'll cause you to lose your soul if you allow them to gain the upper hand. No wonder then in light of that, as we come to the bottom of this slide, is it still the case that these fleshly lusts these issues and these matters, do they still war against the soul? And we know that answer to be yes. We understand our 
our great enemy, the devil, walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. 1 Peter 5, 8, the same book in which we're studying. And we notice that these fleshly lusts bring us to the bottom. In the very midst of a description like this one, could I ask you to notice what just preceded it? Often things in the Word of God are stated with such a beautiful arrangement. And of course the Holy Spirit did that. Verse number 11 that makes mention of these fleshly lusts and the admonition that was given to them to in fact not be given to them. Look two verses earlier at verse 9. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. These Christians to whom Peter wrote, their very nature and character was called to such a high location and a beautiful understanding and association to God. And because of that, he says, don't you be given to these fleshly lusts. They war against your soul. And Peter wanted them, of course, to remain in a condition that was always right with God. You and I have no higher aim or goal today than that still, do we? The desire to be right and to continue that way. As we close that slide, we're going to make application then of some of the premises of this matter as it touches the particular character of attire or dress and see what things perhaps contained in it can be of such value even for you and me today. In light of that, let's consider this next slide. One which takes us to a, a set of principles, a set of precepts, if you please, taking us back really to, to the dawn, not nearly of time. The scene, of course, was a very overwhelming one. God had created this universe and the things contained in it. One by one, on those six days of creation, into being came not only the inanimate things, such as the heavenly bodies, day number four, the features characteristic of water itself and other matters, but on days five and six, we find in particular life, of course, as it appeared in the skies and also in the water. And then on day six, that life on land. Land-dwelling creatures and ultimately the human being himself. As God fashioned that, we remember that the man was alone initially and God took, the rib from, uh, took a rib from the side of Adam and fashioned a woman and brought her to him. And God married them. As he did so, the closing verse to Genesis chapter 2 says that they were naked and they were unashamed. Picture it. Here was a man and a woman. They were able to proceed about with no clothes whatsoever. And there was no shame in it. There was, in fact, nothing improper about it. There was nothing inappropriate about it. However, all of that was to change so very swiftly. In the next chapter, we notice Genesis chapter 3. Some events are in fact brought to your appreciation and mine in which we notice the tempter, the subtle serpent, came before Eve. And therein, ultimately by virtue of conversation, encouraged her and she in fact did so to partake of that forbidden fruit, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now that was the very tree located in the midst of the garden and God in the previous chapter had told them don't partake of it. You may eat of every tree but that one. But we remember, of course, that Eve not only partook of it, the text says in verse 6 of chapter 3, she gave to Adam, he too did eat. 
And did you notice what happened next? Perhaps we each can appreciate. Practically the very first thing they did after partaking of that forbidden fruit was this. Could I call to your attention the statement of verses 7 and 8? It says, And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Now, we don't know how long they had lived in Eden in that pristine pureness. We aren't told how much time elapsed from the time God placed them in Eden until the time that, of course, they chose to sin. But during that time, they had, of course, appreciated an incredible existence in innocence without shame due to the character of their presentation. But now, everything changed so quickly. Did you notice again, the eyes of them both were open. They knew they were naked. It seems the very first thing they then chose to do upon their partaking of that fruit, the realization that came from their eyes being open was this. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. They sought to conceal, to cover their nakedness. These particular words on the slide help us to appreciate a little more clearly what it is that they did. The King James uses the word aprons. Perhaps you're reading it a different translation. That word literally means a loin covering, a belt. As you give thought to it, you'll notice that other places that that word is used conveys the sense that it, it sought to cover that very set of private parts on both the man and the woman, those, those you know, near, the, near the loin area of the body. In fact, later on in 1 Kings 2, the same word is used there explicitly in reference to covering that portion of the body. Isn't it rather fascinating to notice here were two who had lived in innocence for some amount of time and now with their eyes being opened, the first thing that they sought to do was to cover their nakedness. These next comments ask us to notice, as you think then about a loin covering, maybe that reminds you and me about certain kinds of clothing, perhaps witnessed today, maybe a modern swimsuit that covers again that portion of the body would quickly come to mind. But with that notice, in the verses that follow, a conversation ensues. We notice that God comes walking in the cool of the day. And we notice that they hide themselves. However, God knows where they are. And as that conversation proceeds, a punishment is placed on the serpent, on the man, and on the woman. Each of them in their part relative to the evil, the choice of sinfulness that had been made. And then we notice this statement in verse, verse number 21. It says, Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothed them. Now one might immediately notice, but they were already wearing some fig leaves. They were wearing some aprons that they had made. But that very clearly was insufficient. It very clearly was not suitable or satisfactory. These coats of skins mentioned in verse 21, what, what are them? I wonder what they might be. Well, again, as you'll notice, the text rather interestingly emphasizes, doesn't it, that God made these coats of skins for both of them. It wasn't just for the woman. The man needed to be covered too. These coats, what's the word? Again, you might be reading in a translation that offers a, a substitute or at least offers an elaboration of it. 
the word literally has thought to a tunic with long sleeves. Or to say it differently, a tunic or rather a long shirt-like garment. Now as you consider the identification, the definition that goes with that particular word, this coat, notice that God made it of skins. And perhaps one final thought. Do we know anything more about this coat and the way, for instance, that the, the Holy Scriptures use that word? The word does occur rather often in the Bible. Here are some passages that at least give us some reminders as to other places and the signification that it brings. In Job 30 verse 18, it extended from the collar downward. So we know basically where the top of this coat was. It was under the impression of that day that it was to extend from the collar downward. This was that same word, wasn't it, that was used in terms of Joseph's coat of many colors in Genesis 37. And it's that same word that's used again in so many other places, highlighting a rather interesting development or description of it. One last thing on that slide. You and I know today that when we think about a tunic or a long robe-like piece of apparel, we don't wear those today. When's the last time you saw anyone in public wearing what looks like a tunic or a robe? As we've looked at pictures of the ancient Roman Empire, that was a rather common thing for them. It's easy to see, though, that as we come to the New Testament, that God was establishing a principle. He wasn't commanding that you and I wear a tunic all the time, but He was putting in place a set of principles, a set of precepts to which you and I should, of course, give appreciation. And as we do that, let's see what some of those principles may have been. This next slide. As we think more about Adam and Eve and the circumstances in which they found themselves, could I call to your attention a set of verses after they had chosen to partake of the forbidden fruit? This is what they said. Verse 7, The eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. So in this instance, they knew they were naked, but they weren't wearing anything. Let's read on. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. But Adam was wearing aprons of fig leaves he had made by then, and he still said he was, that he was naked. Verse 11, And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? You'll notice even God used reference to that word naked. So before he made the fig leaves, he was naked, and then after he constructed the apron, he still was naked. Maybe here's a principle. It's entirely possible to be wearing some kind of clothing and to still be naked, at least from the biblical perspective. I wonder what's involved then in God's presentation, His definition, if you please, of this matter of nakedness. Well, you might notice later on we have some additional texts that provide some assistance. In Exodus 28, verse number 40, by this time God was, of course, giving some commandments. He, in fact, was giving instruction relative to the priesthood and what was to take place relative to their service amongst the people of Israel. 
These, of course, were the children of Aaron. They were, of course, of, of the Levite tribe. You'll notice in verse number 40 of Exodus 28, we have an interesting statement about the character of what God forbade. I would invite you to notice the wording of it as it refers again to some elements of nakedness. Exodus 28, verse number 40. And for Aaron's sons thou shalt make coats. Notice same word that we saw back, the coats of skins in Genesis 3.21. And thou shalt make for them girdles and bonnets shalt thou make for them in glory for beauty. And thou shalt put upon them, and put them upon Aaron and thy brother and his sons with him. And thou shalt anoint them and consecrate them and sanctify them, that they may minister unto me in the priest's office. And thou shalt make them linen breeches to cover their nakedness. From the loins even unto the thighs they shall reach. Now you might pause with me to notice that on this occasion the priest had a significant number of elements and articles of clothing to wear. As you and I studied Exodus some, some number of weeks ago in the Bible study class, we saw that there was a number of references. And yet, beside all of that, you notice in verse 42, there was still something to be covered. It was their nakedness. But wasn't it true? They were wearing an ephod, a particular set of bonnets, and a number of other things. But God said there's still nakedness to be covered. And so verse 42 Linen breeches were therein to be, to be utilized, to be worn. Isn't it true that God then wanted very clearly us to understand that there are portions of the human body that even from the perspective of religious nature was never to be seen in public. It was to be concealed so that even accidental viewing thereof would not take place. You may notice on that slide, later in Isaiah chapter 20, God even made reference to a particular portion of the human frame. It's the buttocks. And there He said again, that must always in completeness be concealed, be covered. Because if not, it then leads to a viewing of nakedness. Isn't it true as we continue to look one by one at some of these verses, we can appreciate a principle. We can appreciate some rather interesting conclusions. As you and I look forward next on that slide, we then can conclude that it's entirely possible to be wearing some clothing and yet still, from the perspective of the Word of God, be a person who's naked. We understand that would not be pleasing to God. That surely would not be approved by Him because in His Word, He in so many places has warned against it, both Old and New Testament. It is with that in mind we come to note then, when God made those coats of skins for Adam and Eve, what was the purpose of them? Well, it's easy to recognize, isn't it? It was to conceal their nakedness. It was to cover appropriately and adequately the human frame, the human body. I suppose throughout the ages it has been an oft-occurrent thing that manufacturers and, yea, prompted by the desires of people, often one may wear clothing, but it's worn in such a way that it still conceals not much. It still displays so much so that others can perhaps admire or at least be impressed thereby. But that's not the purpose of clothing. The purpose of clothing is to conceal, not to reveal, isn't it? And on these occasions, we noticed even for the priests, and later even the days of Isaiah, there was to be that appropriate concealing of the human frame. 
look what comes next. That surely would imply that clothing then that's basically transparent, that is to say you can see through it, well, that wouldn't be pleasing to God. And yet today you and I know there are particular manufacturers, and you can find it in stores, clothing that has a transparent nature, specifically if there's a source of light beyond the persons between you and the light, you can see right through it. May I suggest we all be very careful that we don't wear clothing through which others even accidentally are able to see. That's not the point of clothing, is it? It's to conceal. Maybe in addition to that, might we notice, if then clothing fits too tightly, that is to say, if one is able to appreciate the form of what lies beneath despite the fact you can't exactly see through it, that still would not be concealing anything. It would still be revealing what would be inappropriate. God wants us, of course, to live in a holy fashion, a godly fashion. And that's not, of course, one that pursues the fleshly lusts that Peter condemned in 1 Peter 2.11. As we've thought so far then about these elements of attire and raiment and clothing so far, we've learned much about Adam and Eve's predicament. Let's go even further, shall we? Our study of attire reminds us then that from the days of Genesis 3 onward, this has been a vital matter for the human frame. The human nature is such that we need to understand and to wear that clothing that is right in the sight of God. As you and I study about these things, we know that there's a set of verses in the New Testament, the New Testament, not just the Old, that also touches this subject. Let us look with care at what was stated in 1 Timothy 2. 1 Timothy, the second chapter, in verses 9 and following, the Apostle Paul addressed that gentleman Timothy and gave him instruction relative to not only his behavior, but that which would be considerable for the church there in Ephesus. Timothy was stationed in Ephesus, and there was much work to be done in that location. And so it was in verse number 9. We notice it says, "...in like manner also that women..." adorned themselves in modest apparel, with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broidered hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. It certainly is true, isn't it, that as the cultures and the societies of men give thought to the presentation by way of clothing, Often there's an enticement, an allurement, a movement to display what shouldn't be seen, to present what ought to be covered. Sometimes the weather motivates as one appreciates the heat and the warmth. But of course, we all wish to do what God wants us to do and to do what pleases Him. What words did Paul use in this verse? There are three words that Paul uses to describe clothing he specifically attaches it, frankly, to women. But we know from our earlier studies and from the larger context of this chapter, even we as men could give serious thought to it, especially when we look at the definitions of the words. The first word you'll notice with me, that women adorn themselves in modest apparel. That adjective, modest, we understand that we each have the opportunity to select out of our closet or from the discount stores, other places, what we wish to wear. And yet there was an encouragement, an admonition 
that a choice involved modest apparel. This word modest, as you can see, it carries with it the thought of that which is befitting, that which is respectable, that which is suitable and seemly, that which is appropriate. In other words, as you and I give thought to what we wear, we always would wish then for it to be characteristic of this word modest. So it should be seemly, it should be appropriate to the occasion, it should be suitable to the circumstances at hand. Surely in light of that, you notice he said something else. There's a word, of course, that you and I don't use much at all, this shamefacedness. He went on to say, with shamefacedness, again, same verse. If you and I can just remember the first five letters of that word, we'll have a good idea about the basic sense of it. Shame. To, in fact, appreciate shamefacedness is to have a sense of shame, to be able to blush relative to something. Quite frankly, there are those in our world who wear, and they should be blushing because of what they're wearing, but they don't. They so often, of course, do not feel a sense of shame, but you and I, with a conscience trained by the Word of God, with an understanding that God doesn't approve any and everything that's worn, we should be able to blush. And if we pull something out of a closet and then put it on, and if it causes us to blush, you ought to change it quickly. Because, of course, we should have that shamefacedness that would motivate us to wear something else. Shamefacedness, you see, means possessing a sense of shame. To possess an attitude whereby some things would not be appropriate. Shamefacedness. Look at the third one. Same verse. And sobriety. That word sobriety carries with it the thought of good sense, sound judgment. It highlights the very thought of self-control and decency. Even if someone else, perhaps even a good friend is wearing this. If my good sense, of course, in light of the teaching of the Word of God, mandates that I ought not wear it, I should be controlled enough to not wear it. Isn't it interesting then how matters that seemingly are so very modern, so very concerning, are things about which the Holy Spirit has stated these centuries and centuries ago? As you and I strive to make some applications of those things, what then have we learned about the character and the nature of some conclusions from it? First of all, those priests, nakedness was to always be covered. And that, of course, related to their undergarments, I believe you and I could appreciate our undergarments ought never, ever be seen in public. We shouldn't be wearing any clothing that even accidentally allows our undergarments to be seen, to be seen by others. That's true even in athletic events. We have no business wearing garments that basically are under or clothing that's undergarments seen in public. And yet, isn't it true? that we find in the Word of God these admonitions challenging even in the ancient era to ensure that that never happened. You notice at the bottom, so our study of clothing has led to these observations. Clothing, of course, should cover. But let's notice, based on some premises or thoughts that we noted earlier, first of all, a man. Adam, back in Genesis chapter 3, God made a coat that extended from collar downward. 
his body, not just the private parts of the groin and loin area, but even others was appropriately covered and concealed. May I suggest those priests and later in the days even of Isaiah. And as we've seen here, these adjectives that were used to describe clothing in the days of 1 Timothy. Did you notice the way verse 9 began? The first four words of 1 Timothy 2 verse 9 were in like manner also. That word also indicates that here are some instructions for women, but what had just occurred before was for men. So these same things that were characteristic of a woman should, of course, be appreciated by a man. Gentlemen, we should always seek to wear what is modest and shamefaced and described with sobriety. No wonder in light of that you notice at the bottom, we should be a bit cautious and careful. We shouldn't be exposing even the upper part of our body in a public way. That was covered in Adam's day. It was covered in the other parts of the Old Testament. We shouldn't be working in a shirtless way in public. You notice, furthermore, it means that we shouldn't be wearing shorts that are too short. They ought to be appropriately lengthened, at least long enough to be described in these ways we've studied this morning. At least a fair amount down the, the, the thigh, perhaps not far above the knee. And as we look at all of those things, our goal is not to be conformed to what we see about us, but of course to lift high the transformation of striving to uphold these descriptions we find in the Bible. One last thing on that slide. The other portions of the male frame. We appreciate, of course, that they're at the bottom. We should be a bit cautious about exposing, even in an accidental way, those features characteristic, again, of that groin section of, of the male anatomy. That should be appropriately covered and concealed. As you and I think about the New Testament development, what else might we say about not only this, but perhaps a special thoughts for ladies? Our goal, as always, is to live every day in such a way that if the Lord were to come back, we'd be ready to go. Could I ask, if the Lord were to come back on a Tuesday afternoon and see me wearing what I'm wearing, then would He be pleased? If you were to come back on a midday Thursday, would I be okay with him? Would he be satisfied with what I have chosen to wear that day? What about you? It's a sobering question, isn't it? And so as you and I think about a woman's body, of course the private parts of her body are also to be appropriately concealed. They are not to be displayed publicly. They are not to be put before others so that even accidentally they might be viewed and looked upon. I've tried to state that in the following way. That means in terms of shorts. A lady, too, shouldn't be wearing shorts or skirts or dresses that are cut too short. That is to say, that come up very far up on the thigh. Because, again, one could accidentally have access to seeing what ought to be concealed. You'll notice furthermore, the midsection of a lady, just as it was for a man, shouldn't be open to public viewing. That too ought to be appropriately covered. Remember the coat that God made Eve as well as Adam? Furthermore, as you come to the next one, we notice that that portion of a woman's frame, or the breast area, the upper part of the chest, we understand very well that, of course, clothing has to be appreciated relative to as she puts it on. Is it possible 
that that might be seen or at least might be displayed by the way a blouse is cut or the way a particular dress may be made? And we know the answer is yes. Might we ask ourselves to notice then that clothing that exposes that part of a lady's frame, that would not be pleasing to God for He covered it on Eve and he, in fact, mandated that even in the days of Paul, that clothing ought to not display those things, and in Peter's day, to encourage the fleshly lusts in others. Surely, in fairness to those things, these comments would be in order. As the frontal part, might we also notice that as God made those coats, of course, the back would have been appropriately concealed as well. And one by one, that leads us to ponder a bit about some of the modern styles of clothing, where there is some clothing on the upper part of the front and little on the back. I believe some call it razorback kind of clothing. Those things would not be a pleasing thing to God. And in competitions and athletic events and others in which choices can be made, may we always remember, even in those instances, our clothing should be with shamefacedness, with sobriety, with modesty. At that point, as you and I think about the other things that we've learned and the principles to be seen in it, we highlighted that even though clothing may be worn, if it's transparent or if it forms too closely to the body, then it doesn't conceal what's beneath it. That would mean leggings wouldn't be the same as pants. That would mean that other characteristic features of those things, again, would be very problematic. Maybe as we conclude that slide... Two final principles in the lesson then will, will be each of us. Our study of this matters of attire today and what it is that is the obligation resting upon us as children of God and those that would be pleasing to God would lead us to note this. That person who is dressed modestly, who has in fact utilized the teaching of the Word of God and who has chosen a set of pieces of attire that are in every way with shamefacedness, with modesty and sobriety, that person, of course, is doing what God has demanded of that person, be it man or woman. If some other individual chooses to look with lust upon that person, the fault rests with that person then. The fault rests with that one who is given to that attitude of lust. For the individual who is dressed modestly has done all that God has demanded of that person. But you'll notice on the bottom, that individual who does not dress modestly and thus violates the commandments we've studied. And then if an individual does look upon that person, both are at fault. You'll notice we're commanded in Romans 14, 13 to never put a stumbling block before others. To never conduct ourselves in such a way to cause them to stumble to do anything before them that would cause them to make a choice of sin. As you and I strive to live wisely, honorably, and appropriately before God, all those decisions are manifested even in light of the choices of the clothing you and I wear. As we close our lesson today, you'll notice on this slide just an extremely brief summary. Abstain from fleshly lust. These things war against the soul. 1 Peter 2.11. And along that line, we've learned both for man and woman some very practical, down-to-earth suggestions, demands on the part of God. May you and I live wisely each day, 
so that even our clothing is an open declaration of who our Lord is and who we intend to serve faithfully. It might be that there's someone in the audience today who has never become a Christian. You have to this point chosen to live separate and distant from the God of heaven. You know that Jesus died on the cross for you. He came to provide a way that you might be saved. That plan of salvation, believe in Jesus as the Son of God, repent of your sins, confess His name as the Son of God and be baptized. If we could assist you in that today, it would be a glorious honor for us and what a great day for celebration for you. If you have become a Christian but you haven't lived faithfully, you have allowed the motivations of the devil to lead you into places where you so greatly regret it now. Why not come back in rushing character to the loving side of the one that died for you? Return to your first love. If we could pray to God on your behalf, making note of your repentance and confession, we'd be happy to do that. If there be anyone in the audience who would be in a position that you would wish to make a public response to the gospel call of invitation, don't delay, but why not come now while together we stand and while we sing?